Thanks so much for finding us here at the Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender, and my co-producer, Angela Washington, and I are ever so proud and honored to bring the stories of amazing people to you. These are survivors, thrivers, innovators, and trailblazers who tell us not just their stories, but how they got through whatever they got through to get to where they are. We hope you find them as inspiring as we do. Thanks so much for listening and for giving us the honor of your time. I'm so pleased to welcome Lorinda Boyer to the Morning Glory Project today. She is the author of Straight Enough. Lorinda strove continuously to be virtuous in the eyes of God and to live the life she believed he intended for her. She married her high school boyfriend at 18, had two kids by 28. Although she created a perfect Christian home for her family, she never felt wholly content in her role as wife and mother. Then her life intersected with Robbins, the woman who would ultimately awaken her sexuality and show her true love for the first time. Struggling to come to terms with her sexual identity within the confines of her strict fundamentalist Christian upbringing, Lorinda is pushed into living a double life, one part perfect housewife and mother, the other part sexual addict. She soon finds herself in the fight for her life. More than a coming out story, this is a coming into story. It's the story of coming into an authentic life and an authentic self. Lorinda Boyer, welcome to the Morning Glory Project. Thank you so much for being part of this. Thank you so much for having me. So your book called Straight Enough, the title intrigues me. Can you tell me how you came to that title? Well, I I actually chose the title when the book was nearly finished because what I realized um, was that my journey in the beginning was really just to find a way to be straight enough to fit into my Christian um, idea of what a wife, uh, a heterosexual wife should be. And I realized over time, that's really what I was telling myself. If I could just be straight enough, then I could work everything out. Mm. And so it, it was always in the back of my mind. And um, not long before the book was finished, I thought, you know what, that sums it up. <laughs> and well, so tell me, I mean, I'm still intrigued. I have to pick a little bit more. Okay. <laughs> so straight enough in your mind, when you were living it, not so much when you were writing it, but when you were living it, was it sort of like, I just need to pass? Or is it just like, I need to shave off pieces of myself so that I can fit into being straight enough? Well, before I knew better, I thought that it would be possible to cut away the parts of me that were making me, um, preventing me from being straight enough. So I think in the beginning, the idea was that I would be straight. But as time went on, I think the enough part of it came out where I thought, okay, well, this isn't working out, but if I could just be straight enough and in that vein, if I could just pass <laughs> as straight. So it, it sounds like it morphed over time and it went first one, then the other. Definitely. Well, and, and not for nothing, you didn't skimp on the effort that you put into trying to shave off those parts of yourself. Can you say a bit about 
you put yourself into what they now call conversion therapy. I don't know if they called it that when you entered. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yes. So I had um, really struggled and prayed and thought that um, I could just take care of this little problem of being attracted to this. It was one woman in particular, um, myself, when I realized that wasn't going to happen. I put myself in a conversion therapy program that was offered at my church. Um, it was a nine month program, which was intentional because you were, the idea was that you would be born new hmm. <laughs> after those nine months, you'd, you'd be reborn as your better Christian self. And so I wholeheartedly put myself in there and I actually <laughs> went back three times, three years in a row. And, um, it was finally in the third year that I realized, ah, oh, yeah, <laughs> this isn't working out. <laughs> well, and, and you say it with humor now because you're on the other side of it, but I, I try to imagine the anguish of what that must've been like for you to be in that group with the kind of conflict that you were feeling. And, and I, I presume that, that your intentions were sincere, Yes, uh, that you really wanted to conform. You wanted to, to be what your parents and what your church were telling you, you ought to be. What kind of conflict must that have been for you? I mean, it was, it was heart wrenching because everything I had should have made me the most happy woman ever. I had a husband that appeared to adore me from the outside and most of the time from the inside. Uh, he was very actively involved with our church. Um, I had, I ended up having two beautiful sons. I had a nice house. I had a job that I liked. And so I really had no reason to be unhappy except that I had this one secret that I was holding on to, which was that I really wasn't as attracted to my husband as I was to women. And it was heart wrenching. I want, I tried so hard to pray it away. I tried so hard to, uh, conversion therapy it away and, and it didn't happen. <laughs> well, so, so let me, let me go back. Uh, and again, uh, and, and please hear this. I, I'm not scolding you in any way. It's, it's interesting how you can be on the other side of such anguish and that it brings laughter to look back at it. Yeah. But I know that in the middle of it, it wasn't so funny for you. And, and that from yours, from the story that you've told me and from the story that I've read in your book, it, there was a lot of anguish there. So before that, and, and I want to be careful here because to me, there's a difference between faith and religion. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I have deep respect for um, how people come to their faith and how they how they reconcile their belief with how the world came to be and how we're supposed to live in it. But it sounds as though the particular kind of church you were in was was pretty extreme. No, I would say rigid. I would say rigid. There, um, I wouldn't. It may sound extreme, but it was no Westboro Baptist. You know what I mean? It was it was a typical Baptist church that I was raised in. And then as an adult with quote unquote adult, I was only 16 when I started going there with my to be husband. We went to a more uh, a, a looser kind of church than the Baptist church. But those roots, those Baptist roots never left me. And so even when I went into a church that was a little more 
um, charismatic. Uh, I still couldn't, I couldn't shake the real strict upbringing I had. And that church was not suggesting that you do just because they raised their hands and they sang um, songs off the projector didn't mean that they were accepting any more accepting of homosexuality or any of those things either. So, well, I guess, I guess what I'm talking about in terms of the extreme is that there were, there was, I mean, I think that there are lots of um, avenues in the Christian faiths that are conservative and that uh, don't believe that homosexuality is a righteous way to live and all of that. But then in your upbringing, and maybe it was your family, help me if, I, if I'm understanding this well, it sounds like they also had some really pretty narrow definitions of womanhood and what a woman was supposed to be. Does that seem right to you? It does. And, and, and I never realized um, that that was a lot of, that was my, my, my town as well. Like this wasn't an unusual way for a girl growing up where I did to think or behave. It seems strange now. And it even seems strange when I was old enough and I moved away to the big city, which was like, you know, less than 10 miles from my, where I grew up. It all, it felt like a totally different world, but my parents had certain ideas of how and what I should be. But even more so, I felt that way in my town. Like I just felt like my school you know, how I was being raised in school, how I was being raised in church. It all, it all was telling me like, oh, I'm going to get engaged. I'm going to get married. I'm going to have kids. I'm going to live in my same small town. And it, there wasn't a strong emphasis for you to be educated beyond high school? No. At all? Because you didn't need that. Your role was wife and mom, right? Right. And and just for context here, put, put me in time and place. So uh, we're recording this in 2022. <laughs> you're, how, what's your age, Lorinda, if you don't mind my asking? <laughs> so I just turned 50. Um, okay. Was, yeah. So I was born in 71 and I grew up in a small, um, a small town in uh, the Pacific Northwest. Okay, so so in other words, this wasn't in the in the nineteen fifties. No. Is my point, and no, so this is in the seventies, in the middle of what was still going on as the sexual revolution, and uh, not so much where you lived. <laughs> sounds not so sounds much. Like in fact, um, the county I grew up in, if you were not involved in a church um, group of some sort, you really had no social life. The county was spread out. Um, there was a lot of farms, a lot of logging that kind of thing. And schools were far apart as well. And so if you wanted to get together with other kids, mostly what you did was youth group through hmm. a church. So that was my whole social life as well. So to, to separate yourself from that would be a huge loss. Right. I mean, a loss of all of your social contacts, a loss of friendships to say nothing of family. Right. So the risk, the stakes were high, I guess is what I'm saying. They were. And because I was not an athletic kid, you know, I didn't have like teams of friends at school. I was a um, just a really average student. I uh, was pretty shy. And so really my only outlet was those church groups. And I was even shy within those groups, but those were my only... Um, my only sources of friendship and entertainment <laughs> throughout the week. So aside from, you know, regular school days. So yeah, it was, it would be very scary to think about coming out uh, and risking that. 
risking any of, of losing any of that. Well, and, you know, and not even just around issues of sexuality, but I know not only from talking to so many Morning Glory Project guests, but loved ones, friends, uh, acquaintances, and, and others, clients. And, you know, we we think that change is something that you can just like, oh, I have to live this way. And it just sort of is this declaration. But, you know, the change comes with loss and risk. Yeah. And it seems like, like I said, the stakes are really high for you in this arena. So you, it seems to me through your story that what you did is you kind of split yourself. I did. Yes. <laughs> Can you say a bit about that? What, what that meant and what it looked like? Because in one hand, you were going to this conversion therapy group for three years, mm-hmm. <laughs> three pregnancies <laughs> That's right. um, for three years. And yet, of course, that wasn't working. So tell me about your kind of double life. Right. So, I mean, in the beginning, I had no idea that anything would be any different than the way I had already planned it out. I, in my mind, I planned out getting married, having kids, having a house, going to church. That all came true for me. It wasn't until after my first son was born that I met someone, another woman uh, where I worked And I started to have feelings for her. So none of the before, even though I, there were things that came up as a, as a a child, like they gave me nowadays, I would say, oh, obviously there's some clues there that you probably liked girls. Um, That didn't happen to me until I was in my twenties and I had had my first son. So falling in love with her, that's what started the whole double life thing, because I, I felt so guilty about it and I wanted to hide it. And yet I also didn't want to lose her. And so that's where it started to happen. Um, in my book, that there is a really great part that talks about what happens <laughs> with me and uh, that woman, with me and Robin. Um, so I'm not going to tell you because it'll ruin it. But after that is when I started to really act out sexually and look for other men to have sex with. So it's really weird because it sounds like it was so extreme, but as it happened, it was like this thing led to this thing. So I, I fell for this woman, which led me to all this guilt and anguish and I felt horrible. And then at some point I don't get to see her anymore. And so I start to bottle up all this anger. And eventually one day I just randomly take it out on this guy that I come in contact with. Um, and after that, that sexual encounter, I feel this sense of like release, you know, like of my, of the anger that I had bottled up inside. It was Mm -hmm. like, I took it all out on him. And that became the way that I would deal with all of this anger that was bottled up by not being able to live the life I wanted. So I was, cause I, I wanted to make my husband happy and I wanted to do the right thing. And so it was almost a way of like, well, see, I can, I can do this with other men. So I can do this with my husband. I just need to you know, I, I just need to try harder. It seems like, did it seem like you were trying to turn yourself straight through having lots of sex with other men? I mean, it, at times there were, it's funny because there were times when I thought, okay, okay. So now, now just do this. You can do this. Other times I was so mad at what, what was going on inside of me that I couldn't understand that I actually hated like the men that I was having sex with. Like I was so mad and so angry and I just, I hated them. I hated what they represented. I hated the fact that, um, I couldn't do this, this, this thing. Right. Uh, yeah, it was, 
it was very, very strange way to separate off. I, I thought, but after being in therapy for a long time, I learned that that, that sometimes happens. <laughs> But it, it's so funny. I have this image as, as you're talking of, of like having a really big beach ball and trying to hold it under the water, you know, like how much force yes. it takes to keep that down and how much muscle strain. And, you know, it seems it's just a beach ball. It's just a simple thing. Right. But you're just you're, the force that it takes to push that down and the impact that it has on the rest of the body. Right. While yes. you're doing that. Yeah it just sort of seems like you were creating a tension in yourself yeah. by suppressing who you are and then it explodes, right? I mean, right. the beach ball doesn't float up back to the surface. It flies straight up, right? <laughs> when it gets let go. And I think, you know, you, you think that I thought that I was a really good actress, you know, I really thought that I was hiding all of my, um, my anger and my frustration with, with what was going on with me. And I thought that I was acting in such a way that my husband would never, would never suspect there was anything wrong with me. And so and that was not the case. And that was not the case because, you know, years later, you know, just like you say, eventually you can't hold it all together anymore. You can't hold it down and it pops back up. And that's what happened is um, at some point, my husband and I, circumstances led to us losing our house and we just had all kinds of, you know, terrible things happening, but really the problem that was, was worse. Like we could have made it through any of those struggles, but what was worse was that I had never been honest. You know, I didn't really want to be with him. You know, I wanted to be with him in the idea of that marriage and that, but not, but I didn't really want to be with him. Well, it sounds like you wanted to be with him because that, that was the, the paper cutout of what you thought you were supposed to be. So you did the thing that would fit the paper cutout, you know, right. that, and, and meanwhile, you're raising sons. Right. And so that had to be some confusing stuff, right? When you're raising sons and I assume that you're raising them in the, in similar religious context. Right. I'm raising them in a, in Christian school. Um, we're going to church every Sunday. We have Bible studies at our house. You know, I, I yeah. So the guilt, you know, I, I have to, I, I think the splitting off part, um, I don't know why that happened to me so naturally, except that I think that, you know, I was a, a sexually abused child. And so that is something that you kind of learn early when that happens, I think. Right. But, um, but there was so much guilt all the time. I was so guilty. I felt so guilty. So I was physically ill most of the time as well. You know, I, I wasn't super healthy. Yeah. And then raising my boys, I just, all this guilt I had, I kept thinking, I'm going to ruin your lives. At some point, I'm going to ruin your lives. Something's going to happen. Mm. <laughs> that was my biggest fear. Well, I want to come back to that. But before we go there, you know, I'm just thinking about what a toxic recipe this is. So you have a narrow definition of sexuality in a, in your church and in your family tradition and in your whole community, you have a sexual abuse in early life that, that is there now. Now, some people would say, gee, you were sexually abused by a man. Did that turn you gay? So I've heard that question lots. Can, do you want to address that just for a second? <laughs> because I, I think that's a, that's one of those, um, 
common thoughts that folks have. Right. And that's actually something that they talked about in the conversion therapy program as well. Um, But I personally think that my, my own, my own thoughts are that you're either born gay or you're not. And I feel like I was always drawn more to females. Yeah. That's just my feeling. I don't know. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist, but I, yeah. I guess what I'm just saying is that I didn't want folks to think that, that I wanted you to be able to voice that notion of, you know, this uh, born this way as Lady Gaga says, but I'm thinking also about how um, this narrow definition of womanhood, the sexual molestation, the being different and having your sexual identity be different and the kind of, there wasn't really a way to talk about this in a way. So it sounds like rather than talk about it or seek, you know, you talked about it as, as a thing that you were trying to get rid of Mm -hmm. in your, but in terms of being talking authentically about your attraction, about who you are. And it just sounds like the perfect recipe that got you to a real crisis point in your life. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So after, um, after my relationship with the woman with Robin ended and I was, had turned to all of this, um, you know, sleeping with other guys and just trying to, trying to figure out my mess. I also was in therapy. So I had a good therapist. She was not Christian. So I kept her kind of hidden from my life as well because uh, my public life, because she wasn't a, a Christian and where I grew up. Um, if you didn't pick a therapist that actually went to your church, then you at least had to have someone that was accepted as someone that you could go to through your church. Right. And so I, and she was none of those things. I, I ended up seeing her because my family doctor sent me to her. Mm-hmm. And um, it's interesting because had she not been my therapist, things could have gone a lot differently. She allowed me, I mean, to go through three years of conversion therapy because she knew I, she knew I had to do it. You know, I, I tried to explain to her, like, you don't really understand, like, I will keep coming to you and and whatnot, but you don't really understand because you're not, you know, you're not like me and in the church, you know, this is what you have to do. So she let me go through it. Um, but she was the, the voice of, I'll, I'll say now the voice of reason, you know, she was the one that kept saying, Lorinda, there's always the chance (laughs) that maybe you don't want to be with men or Lorinda, there's always, you know, she was mm-hmm. planting that stuff in there. So had it not been for her and her crazy wild ideas, I wouldn't <laughs> have known that there was, you know, like I wouldn't have had that to balance out. I would have right. just continued to go down the hole with this whole. Um, well, here, here's where I put in a plug for really good therapists Yes, <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, a therapist that, you know, she could have been a bad therapist in one of two directions. She could have been a bad therapist that colluded with this notion that your sexuality was wrong and aberrant, mm-hmm. or she could have been a therapist that scolded you for your faith and belittled it in some way. But it sounds like she held it in a respectful place as the journey that you needed to be on and you needed to make your own discovery, but that she would offer alternative vantages on that, on those choices so that you could kind of come to them in your own way. So yay for good therapists, because let me tell you, there are, there are bad ones in the world and I have um, inherited clients from them in the past. So, so 
Yay. We have to remember that even in monk therapists, somebody graduated bottom of the class. Um, <laughs> yes, there are those, but I'm glad you got a top of the class kind of yes. therapist. And she was great. I had her, I, well, I saw her for, you know, 20 some years and I still mm. am in contact with her. So she definitely, you know, plays a huge part in saving my life. So, so eventually you reconcile this guilty self and the truth about your attraction and all, and you have to make the choice of, and so, but you reached a crisis point before that. So I want to come back to that crisis moment and how things turned for you. So really the, what really, what finally pushed me over the edge, well, there's a couple things. First, by my third year of conversion therapy, I finally understood that what they were telling me was that I could, I could be trained, I guess, to not act on my feelings. Um, but they were not promising that I would ever not have the feelings that I had, the homosexual feelings. They were just saying, we're going to teach you how to not act on them. And basically, that's just being straight enough, right? You're just pretending that you don't really have those feelings and you're going to make yourself, um, you know, be a godly wife in their, in, in their eyes, whether or not you feel it. So that was very discouraging. That's when I really, really thought about ending my life. And just, I thought, I can't, I can't believe this. Like, I thought that like God could do anything. And like, you mean to tell me that he can't make me straight? Like, I just, this is it. This is my only option. Um, and then right around that same time, um, my husband and I, we lost our house. We, uh, I had, that's all in there in the book as well, but we had like come uh, into some financial difficulties. We lost the house that we had lived in for about 10 years. And I thought that we were just going to move on and everything was going to be fine. But he was dating someone at that time <laughs> and everyone seemed to know it, but me. <laughs> so he had his own complications. He had his own complications. So that's what happened is he, he left and I had to make a decision. Like, are you just going to go out and find another husband and try to fix this thing? Or are you going to finally, you know, admit that you don't want to be with men. And that's really where it all came to. It came to the point where I realized, first of all, I'm never going to be straight. And second of all, I have, this is like, he's basically giving me a pass. Like I can either continue on in this life or I can say, well, you know, it's ending and this is my chance to, to be who I really am, you know, to come out. But right before that too, you were, you felt suicidal before this, before this kind of breakthrough moment of, Hey, I have a choice here. Right. It was sort of like, I, there was a, there was an, I don't want to, I don't want to live like this feeling. I didn't want to live like that. I didn't want to bring my kids down. I knew that since he was leaving, he, he was, he was going to out me and he did to all of my family. And so mm. I thought, when my parents, when everybody finds out about this, I'm going to lose my children. I'm going to lose face. My parents are going to be brokenhearted. I mean, I just thought it's so much better if I just go, like if I just end my life now and just, you know, I've, I've made such a Royal mess of everything. I couldn't see outside of what I had done. Like I, I couldn't even see any of his responsibility in our you know, impending divorce and all this stuff. All I could see was what I had done. And if only I had done a better job, if I had 
been straight enough, I could have avoided this whole mess and I didn't, you know? And, you know, it seems to me that so many people that I've talked to that have wrestled with the feelings of suicide or even having made attempts at suicide have said they just thought the world would be better off without them or they just couldn't face what the, the, the problems that they had created and they thought it would just be easier to, to not face them at all. Yep. And you somehow came back from that brink and got to the other side where you said, no, wait a minute, now I have an opportunity right. and changed your world. Tell me how, what you do now, Lorinda, to, and by the way, this cost you a lot. It did cost you friendships. It caused a rift in your family. Um, your, your parents remain in the church, if I understand correctly. My mom, yeah your mom. And what is the impact in terms of where you are with family and, and community? Well, I like to tell people that just on my dad's side alone, I have 53 first cousins. So you can always find someone to take your side. So (laughs) so you're not totally alone, (laughs) but, um, yes, it, 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 it really, really broke my relationship with my mom and my mom has always been one of my best friends. Um, and so the rift that it called, but caused between my mom and I, was, was devastating. We didn't speak for a couple of years. It was, mm. um, we would see each other and be polite, but we just didn't talk and she didn't go out of her way to, you know, t- to invite me to things or anything. And so I was really lonely and really, really sad. Um, we have since then been able to move beyond it. She accepts the fact that, you know, this is my life. You know, she doesn't accept that I am a lesbian. Like she will be praying for me until the end. But um, she has figured out how to forge a relationship with me despite that, because, Mm. you know, we both know that, you know, our, our relationship is still, it's still important to us. Um, So other friends and family, you know, you, you expect, I expected the absolute worst. I thought that the whole world was going to catch fire because of what I had done. And I remember one thing that my um, therapist said to me often and, and still reminds me sometimes is, um, you're really not that powerful. (laughs) You know, you really, you don't control that much. (laughs) You know, I, I, I had it in my mind that I was single-handedly going to, uh, you know, devastate and destroy everyone's lives and, and everything. If and, only and, you had that much power. Yeah, right. And the truth is everyone else's life went on just like nothing ever happened. <laughs> and I just needed to figure out how to move on. So, you know, the, the friends that are your friends who love you no matter what will always rally around you. And those who maybe never really did care about you much more uh, than or service did so level conditionally. <laughs> or, or did, did so conditionally, so yeah. they don't stick with you. Um, and that's okay. You know, you, you, you just learned to adjust, you know, I just learned to really, um, embrace the people who were positive and who were going to, you know, help me through and sadly let go of some of those who didn't. And that's, that was hard. I, I know that that was a decision you made to embrace the positive and to let go of what doesn't work for you yeah. and the people, people, things and places that don't work for you. But tell me about, what you do to support yourself to be that way. Like, cause there still must be the residual hanging on of, of guilt and shame and remorse and all of that stuff. Cause like you said, it's, it 
it got planted for a very long time in your in your psyche and in your heart and in your soul. How do you cope each day? How do you get healthy, stay healthy, pursue love? <laughs> um, well, I um, eventually I did get married. I'm married to um, a woman, Sandy, and we um, live together with our pets now. Um, and, and I live in a community where I am actually so fortunate to have a bunch of um, other lesbian couples around us. That's not always a possibility. Um, but mostly I think what I do is I just, every day I try to remind myself that just like um, my therapist said, you know, you're not in control. You don't have that much power. You know, other people are going to decide to be happy or not be happy. And, it, and that doesn't depend on you. Like you can only control what you can control. And so being a true to myself, being my authentic self is more important. I have to remind myself that it's more important for me to stay true to myself than it is to try to make other people happy, which sounds easier than it is because, you know, it is hard. Like you do miss people that, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've woke up in the morning and thought, you know, what would it be like if I had stayed married to him? And, and, you know, where would we be right now? What would be going on Would my children be in a different place than they are right now? Would this have happened with that? But you know, that it's just not possible. So I have to remind myself, like, look, this is who you are. You're healthier for being who you are. You know, when you bury who you are, um, it comes out in terrible ways, you know, like not just the acting out sexually, but I wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't eating right. I wasn't sleeping and right. I wasn't doing anything right. So if you're being true to yourself, you have a desire to, to take care of yourself. Well, if, if you think you're awful, why wouldn't you treat yourself awfully? Exactly. And <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Not to sound trite about it, but, and, and I, but I want to slow down and, and just linger just for one more minute at what you said. It's more important for me to be true to myself than it is for me to try to make everybody happy. And that's something I'm working on every single day because I'll, you know, all I've ever wanted is to make my parents proud, you know, and make my children's lives as easy and as wonderful as it can be. And, you know, I, I don't actually control, I don't actually control any of that, you know? And so I try to remind myself every day that, that as long as I'm taking care of myself and I'm taking care of my happiness you know, that's an example to my, my boys who are now grown, but to my boys, you know, how to be happy, how to, you know, you have to take control of your life. You have to take control of your own happiness before you, people around you are going to be happy. You know, I, yeah, it, it's definitely an everyday thing. Like every day I wake up and I look over at my wife and I think, wow, I actually, this actually happened. And then I just try <laughs> to remind myself, like, you know, you just, you just got to take care of you. You just got to take care of you. Mm. Well, I, I've often told um, when I had parents as therapy clients, I saw parents kind of trying to fashion themselves into the perfect parent and neglect themselves for the sake of their kids. And I used to always tell them, you know, your kids don't gain their self-esteem by you telling them, by you gutting yourself and telling them they're wonderful. They get their self-esteem by watching how you treat yourself. Right. And it sounds like that's a realization to some degree that you came to, too. Your sons are now grown mm -hmm. and you have a relationship with them. I I'm trusting. I do. Yes. We're, we're very close. So oh, that's good. good. 
Yeah. Well, your book, Straight Enough, Lorinda, is so candid and so vulnerable and uh, so honest that it it meshes with the bio that I read, which is that it's about coming into, not coming out, but coming into an authentic life and authentic self. Thank you so much for sharing your story with me today and with our listeners. I so appreciate it. And folks can find your book, Straight Enough, through Sidekick Press or wherever books are sold. Thank you so much, Linda. Thank you so much. There's much to be gleaned from not only my conversation with Lorinda Boyer, but her book, Straight Enough. Regardless of your sexual identity or, or your life, I think that the, the theme of Lorinda's book is apt for all of us, which is about being our authentic selves. And that when we're not, bad things happen. It's kind of a simple story, right? To be who you are, be true to yourself, because suppressing that, whatever that is, ends up with having a great cost. But in terms of the extra bloom I'd like to explore in this moment, it's the notion of understanding the limits of our own influence. Lorinda said, I figured out that I needed to be true to myself, that that was more important than pleasing everyone else, and that her therapist reminded her that she probably didn't have that much influence to please everybody anyway, even if she did wedge herself into this particular definition of how she was supposed to be. So I I got to thinking about the limits of our influence and powerlessness. You know, I like to be in control of things. I like things organized. I like people to behave well. I like to have certain kinds of relationships in my life and certain kinds of joy in my world. And so I like to try to influence things. But the reality is that that there are limits to my influence. There are loved ones whose behaviors I can't change. There are and this is small and large. You know, you can it can be that you can't get your teenager to do his homework, or it could be that you can't change the behavior of a loved one who's chemically dependent on alcohol or other drugs. So powerlessness, I've tend to associate with sucking because <laughs> I really don't like it when I'm not, when I don't have any influence, but there's another part of it. And that is that the underside or the flip side of powerlessness is that you're free from having to try to influence somebody else. If I can't control your behavior, if I can't control whether you drink or use, if I can't control what you think of me, if I can't control those things, I'm also freed from having the responsibility to do so. It doesn't mean I don't care. It doesn't mean I won't try to offer support. It doesn't mean I'm not available, but I just accept the limits of my own influence. And wowee, what a big hunk of freedom that is when you realize you really, not only do you not have to try to make everyone happy, not only do you not have to control everyone's behavior, but it's not in your capacity anyway, and you're freed from having to try. Hmm. The plus side of powerlessness is freedom. I'll take that as an extra bloom. (laughs) I have to practice that one a lot. I have to tell you, I do love me some control. Thanks so much for listening to The Morning Glory Project. 
and wherever you are living your authentic self, being true to yourself, taking care of you. I hope that you are building your garden so that you can just bloom and bloom and bloom. <laughs>